0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1, 6b, and verse 15, and then also from chapter 9, verses 1, 6, 7, and 13. This is the word of God. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Megathama out of the hand of the Philistines. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And David said, "Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake?" So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet.
1: Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is precious. And we can see throughout history, you were telling the same story in different ways. And we can see your son in this story. We can see your son in King David. And we can see ourselves in Mephibosheth. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this scripture to our hearts this morning. And help me to get out of the way of your gospel. In your son's name we pray. Amen. When Shana and I were first married, we could do nothing. Our wallets were lame in both their feet. (laughs) When someone would invite us to do something, the first question is, how much does it cost? So, um, we, uh, (laughs) the car I drove at that time, I think there's some overcoats out there in the lobby that are worth more than my car at that time. Um, so we were frequenters of the uh, Craigslist free page and um, one time our dining room table that we were given um, lost a fastener, I don't know how, but it lost one of the fasteners for the leg. It was becoming unstable and we had uh, a toddler, so um, so we were looking for a new dining room table. Shana found one that was for free out uh, of a, a storage unit and we showed up and it was made of this like really beautiful burled wood. Um, which is like cross sections overlaid and matched from a knot in a big tree, like it's really rare wood. I didn't know anything about it. Um, so we brought this, uh, we loaded this table up, and he said, "Oh, you know what? I've got this, um, I've got this buffet here if you'd like it." So it, it was kind of a credenza-looking thing that matched. So we said, "Yeah, we'll, we'll take it." So we get it home and um, and we kind of set it up and. Shane is looking at it, and she's like, this doesn't look normal. I think this is valuable. So she searches around and finds the tag and looks it up, and sure enough, both of the pieces together were worth like $10,000. Um, so we obviously sold the items. <laughs> 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 but that is one way that God has provided for us as financially lame as we were, out of his steadfast love. And we're going to look at that term, steadfast love, this morning, or chesed. Today also is Reformation Sunday, 505 years ago. um, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses against the church at Wittenberg. And to say that Luther was passionate about the gospel is a vast understatement. So we owe much of what we think and how we think about the gospel to that man. So um, the things he wanted to change about the church at that time, um, some of them were, there were 95 roughly, give or take. Um, He he wanted to change, the the church was beginning to sell indulgences. And uh, that's like, if you were going to go murder somebody, you'd go to the church first and say, I'm going to murder someone, and they said, say, well, that's a big one, um, 1000 bucks." And so you'd do that, and you'd be forgiven of that sin ahead of time. It was a really nasty thing. There were many others, but um, we, uh, we owe a lot. We're going to learn about the, the gospel. We're going to see the gospel here, and it, I would be remiss in not mentioning that a lot of how we think about the gospel is due to Martin Luther and his Reformation movement from 505 years ago. So, Last week, we heard about uh, the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. It's called the Davidic covenant. And this week, we'll begin to see how some of those Davidic promises are fulfilled, like right after they were made. So I I couldn't introduce this chapter, chapters 8 and 9, any better than um, one commentator named Peter Lightheart. So so he says, uh, Among the promises the Lord gave to David were the promises to make you a great name, to appoint a place for my people Israel, and to give you rest from your enemies. These very things happened in the events of chapters 8 through 10. In 813, David made a name, it says, by his conquest of Edom. And throughout the chapter, the Lord extended the boundaries of Israel. By the end of chapter 8, the territory that David directly controlled or that was subject to him by tribute had doubled. Yahweh gave Israel a place, a roomy place. Chapter 8 is organized geographically in a way that reinforces this point, the roominess of the place. David's conquests begin with the Philistines to the west, and then he fought Moab to the east. After that, David turned north to fight against Hadadezer of Zobah, and his wars ended with the battles against the Edomites in the south. David extended the kingdom to the four points of the compass, symbolizing the extension of David's kingdom to the four corners of the earth. The boundaries of David's mini empire coincided with the boundaries that the Lord had promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18, from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. But right after God made his covenant in chapter 7, we immediately begin to hear about the fulfillment of those. He gave David rest from his enemies. He gave them a name for himself. As as part of David's conquering of these surrounding enemies, there were lots of spoils of war. These things were saved up, and we heard last week also in David's song that David wanted to build a house to the Lord. And what better to do with uh, that with than tons of bronze and other valuable materials uh, from the surrounding areas. As we know, David did not end up building the temple. That was his son, Solomon. But it was from the materials that David brought home from these conquests. God's covenant with David was fulfilled in part with David. But it also awaits its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And we can see this in a number of ways. David's rest here will last only a short period. In later weeks we'll hear how David has to go to battle again. And next week, we'll hear how David should have been going to battle. David's own sin will break the peace that Israel enjoyed, but Jesus will bring lasting peace to us individually through his reign in our lives, and later through the judgment of the nations will he bring peace. It will be then that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and when there are no more battles to be fought. God promised to make a name for David. And just the fact that people still know who King David is outside of the Christian community shows God's fulfillment of that promise to David. But more people know who Jesus is, and God has given Jesus a name above every name. And just as God promised David in chapter 7 that offspring from David's body, namely Solomon, would be a son to me who would build a temple for the Lord. We see later in Hebrews 1.5 that the author of Hebrews applies these words also to Jesus. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And as we heard last week, Jesus was truly a bodily descendant of David through both Mary and his stepfather, Joseph. Jesus is the true Son of God, bringing ultimate fulfillment to the promises of God made to David. So you can can see how these promises were true of David. They were fulfilled in David and in Solomon. But also, they are in a way truer or made more fulfilled through Jesus. In the 1990s, Disney World had a marketing campaign where they got the quarterbacks of the football teams who were competing in the Super Bowl together, and they made agreements with both quarterbacks of both teams, and they said, okay, if you win, we're going to chase you down with a camera and a microphone, and somebody's going to say, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do now? And they're going to say, well, I'm going to Disney World. And it's Brilliant, because it seemed spontaneous, and uh, it caught on, and it's kind of, now Tom Brady had said it for everyone that he won, I think. So after David has conquered his region, you might ask, well, David, now that you've conquered your your region and the the local world, everything but Egypt, basically, what are you going to do now? And we see what he's going to do now in chapter nine. He's going to reflect the loving kindness, the steadfast love, the chesed of God to Mephibosheth, who was Jonathan's son. This is one of the most moving stories of the Old Testament. Let's, Let's look at verse one together. And David said, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant to the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, at lo Lodeber. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, at lo Lodeber. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. This chapter begins by David actively seeking to show mercy to his enemy. Make no mistake, Mephibosheth, anybody in the house of Saul, anybody related to Saul was David's enemy. He was a potential contender to the throne. He was apparently the only surviving heir of Saul. Saul, as you remember, tried to kill David multiple times, returning David's faithful service in Saul's court with malice. David here has experienced the fulfillment of the promises of God in chapter 8. And maybe God's faithfulness to him reminded him of the covenants that David had made. He had made covenants to Jonathan and Saul. David even says twice that he's showing kindness to Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. Um, We don't know the exact name, uh, the exact meaning of the name Mephibosheth. No one's 100% certain on this. Um, It's difficult to say, I had to practice it a lot. And I'm gonna say it about 70 more times. Bosheth means shame. We don't know whether Mephibosheth means out of the mouth of shame or surrounded by shame, but in some way it is related to shame. And recall Mephibosheth's uncle, who was Saul's other son, not Jonathan. Saul had another son, Ish-bosheth. And Ish-bosheth, also a name of shame, reigned over the northern kingdom of Israel and did not give up that kingdom to David after Saul's death. So whatever the, the meaning or the etymology, there, there's just, there appears to not be a lot of pride in Saul's family at this time. Now, Mephibosheth was referred to by a different name in the book of Chronicles. Chronicles has kind of a parallel story to what we see in 2 Samuel. And interestingly enough, chapter 9 is not in uh, Chronicles. Um, but he, Mephibosheth is referred to by a different name. Leading commentators believe that after Saul died, in the manner that he died, after the leadership that he d- that he failed in, uh, his sons' names were changed to mean shame. But whatever the etymology here, Mephibosheth had real reason to fear when he was summoned to the king's court. You know, standard practice for a new king to not only fire but kill the predecessors, family and offspring and relatives uh, as long as he's, you know, if it was a different um, dynasty. So we, we see this uh, still happening in presidential, presidential administrations, there's no killing. Um, but everyone's fired. It's funny. It's just everybody packs up um, and it's a completely new staff with a new administration. So the terrified Mephibosheth, enemy to the king, lame in both his feet, comes to David's court and probably awkwardly bows down however a lame Israelite might do. There's a painting of this where he's got crutches and he's kind of awkwardly like trying to get down. He was living, uh, he was living with someone else. It's, it's, uh, it's important to note he wasn't living in Saul's estate. He was living with a stranger, someone named Makir. Now we'll, we'll learn later that Makir turns out to be a key ally of David's. Um, now the reason for this is unclear. It's, it's not sure, we're not sure if he was in hiding or maybe he was um, just unable to make a living for himself, unable to provide for his family. He had a young son. Either way, he was certainly not trying to make himself known to the king. He wasn't standing up and saying, hey, can you fulfill the promises you made to Jonathan and Saul, please? Verse 7, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always and he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? David does not have Mephibosheth killed, but rather he gives him a lavish inheritance, which otherwise would have been David's to keep. The considerable wealth of Saul was being managed by a guy named Ziba, and uh, it was certainly David's to give away as the successor. There was acreage. There were servants to work the fields. Uh, there was a house just north of, north of uh, Jerusalem with the, with the farmland. Many servants. Saul's plunder from his battles would probably have first gone to his house um, or his estate. And so it, it, was, it was big. It was not as large as David's estate. David just conquered the known world. He's you know, extremely rich. Um, And Saul didn't have as much success in warfare as David did, so he wouldn't have had as much wealth, but still very wealthy, probably more wealthy than Makir or any other wealthy citizens. So imagine living in someone's house, someone else's house, and then the very next day becoming a multimillionaire. That's, That's what happened to Mephibosheth. In his response here, he says, what am I? <laughs> it's entirely appropriate. What am I that you should show thoughtfulness to me, that you, should, that you should even think of me? He says, regard. That's what that means that. What am I that you should regard me? I am as a dead dog to you. Dead dogs you don't want to look at, you did not want to smell, you don't want to get a, within a hundred yards of them. Uh, they were probably diseased, you'd probably get sick. Mephibosheth is baffled at what David has done. And his response here actually reminds me of Moses' response to God when Moses was called to lead Israel out of Egypt. Remember what he said there? Who am I? Who am I to do this? And we see this both in humility and fear uh, and inadequacy of of what um, Moses was being called to do. But God responds. Remember, he doesn't say, oh, come on, Moses, you got this. (laughs) He says, I will be with you. Both, in both cases, it's not about who Moses was. And it's not about what Mephibosheth was. It was about what God was going to do. And it was about what David was going to do. In both cases, it was about their covenant faithfulness, their chesed. In 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan and David set up this scheme whereby uh, David uh, could determine whether to run from Saul or whether he was safe to come home. And this was going to be determined by shooting arrows into a field and Um, So, Jonathan and David, before David runs out into the field, um, they're, they're talking, and Jonathan says, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. There's the phrase. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, Jonathan knows He's an enemy. He's a friend. He's a dear bosom friend of David. But he knows politically he's an enemy. And he's asking David to not cut off his offspring. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So David made this covenant with Jonathan, promising not to cut off the offspring of his house. And when Jonathan here says, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies, that's his dad. That's Saul. He's saying, may the Lord destroy my own family, but please do not cut off my offspring from your house. Jonathan has full faith in David's anointing. And he knows that David will be king. And he knows that the only reason David isn't king at this point is because of his, de- his dad's disobedience and sin. So he pleads with David to show him steadfast love to Jonathan's offspring. Steadfast love or hesed. David also made a covenant with Saul directly. Look with me at 1 Samuel 24, 16 through 22. You can turn there if you like. This is when David had just cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Um, he had a chance to kill him. He chose not to kill him um, because, as David repeatedly said, who am I to kill the Lord's anointed? And so in the morning after he cut off his robe, David was already feeling guilty by this point. But he called after Saul across, uh, across the way. And this is what he said. Um, well, David made himself known and showed him his, the robe that he had cut off. And Saul says, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He realized that he could have died. And he realized that his life was just spared by the person he was pursuing. All of this kind of came together for Saul. And he said, oh, my goodness. What have I done? So he, he confesses, and he says to David... You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me away, or when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king. This is Saul speaking to David. And now, behold, I I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. So in bringing Mephibosheth into David's house. He's remembering his promise to not cut off Saul's offspring. He's remembering his, David, his, uh, his promise to David. By the time of our passage today though, Saul had, had died years ago, more than seven for sure. Um, probably 10 years before this. And I, I don't think anybody there would have blamed David for not fulfilling his promise. If he would have just let Mephibosheth be, then that technically would have been fulfilling his promise. He hadn't cut him off. He hadn't killed him. If he would just every year just said, okay, is Mephibosheth still alive? Does he have a son? Micah, is he still okay? All right. But he does, he does much more than that. So in accordance with Jonathan's wishes, um, David, following God's fulfillment of his covenant, uh, when the Lord did cut off David's enemies from the face of the earth, as his kingdom was expanded in every direction, it was fitting that David show covenant faithfulness to Mephibosheth in the following chapter here, 9. I think that's why that's there. Um, let's continue on in Second Samuel 9, picking up in verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So I've said this a number of times already. When someone holds up their end of a covenant, they're being faithful to their obligations. The Hebrew word for this is hesed, often translated steadfast love. More recently, it's been translated as covenant faithfulness. David made promises to Saul and to Jonathan, and when it came time to fulfill that promise, he had to seek out Jonathan's son. As I mentioned before, Mephibosheth wasn't standing up asking for these promises to be fulfilled. When David sought out Mephibosheth and found him, he was living in a place called Lo Deber, which means no name or nowhere. He was covered in shame, he couldn't walk, He couldn't provide for himself. He was living in someone else's house, unable to make a living on his own, and he was living in nowhere. He was a charity case. He and his young son Micah, who was probably not old enough to contribute anything to the household, David sought him out, brought him out of nothing. He gave him Saul's estate, 36 servants to work the estate and farm the land made a lame charity case the constant companion of the king of Israel, the most powerful person in the region at that time. David gave him a lavish inheritance to which he was not entitled simply because of David's hesed. And he was treated like one of David's sons even, even adopted into the family of the king. And this was even at the risk of Mephibosheth trying to mount some sort of a political coup against him. That was a real risk. He had a few dozen men now, uh, men like Ziba and Ziba's sons and servants who would have done Mephibosheth's bidding. He could have mounted some sort of coup. So uh, David did this at, at risk of his own life. So let's look at this Hesed word a little deeper. Uh, Like I mentioned, it's either steadfast love or covenant faithfulness, but it's a really beautiful term. It's a little more than those, uh, and it's hard to translate. Um, The Bible Project points out uh, a couple of these points. They said this this word includes the concepts of love, generosity, and enduring commitment love, generosity, and enduring commitment. And it communicates a promise-keeping loyalty motivated by deep personal care. And there are examples of this chesed throughout the Bible. So in the next few minutes, I'm gonna talk about a few of those examples, and I'm gonna get into how this applies to us and how we can see this chesed throughout the Bible applying not only to Israel or members of the covenant community, but the members of the new covenant community. Recall the book of Ruth when Ruth, who is a Moabite, who is not an Israelite, loses her Israelite husband. Um, And her uh, her husband's brother also dies. So she's left Ruth and uh, has a sister-in-law and she's got a mother-in-law. And the sister-in-law goes back to her home country, and Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, tries to get Ruth to go back to Moab and start over. But Ruth shows hesed to her mother-in-law. She says one of the most beautiful things in the Bible that one human could say to another. Wherever you will go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Ruth continues to look after and care for Naomi. Throughout the story, modeling this has said, not because of Naomi, not because of anything that Naomi had done and not because of who Naomi was, but because of who Ruth was. Similarly, when Moses and the Israelites are wandering in the desert and a rebellion arises against Moses and Aaron, the Israelites threaten to appoint a new leader and and throw out Moses and Aaron. So God goes and talks to Moses, and God says he's going to destroy Israel and he's going to start over. He's sick of it. He is fed up with his people. They have not Uh, abided by their covenant um, requirements, their covenant obligations. But Moses appeals to God on the basis of God's chesed. He does not appeal to God on the basis of Israel or anything good that they have done, but just on God's covenant faithfulness. There are a few places in Scripture where this, uh, these, the stories of God's faithfulness to Israel are recounted kind of in a, in a summary. Uh, there's, there's a great summary in Deuteronomy. There's some great summaries in Psalms. One of these Psalms is uh, it's not a full summary. It's more of just bullet points, and it's Psalm 136, and I bet you'll know this one. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That can also be rendered, the Lord's chesed is forever. Before the nation of Israel existed, God made a covenant with Abraham. He sealed it with the blood of animals. He had animals cut in half and laid over across each other. And God walked through the middle of the animals, uh, represented by a smoking fire pot and a burning torch. These promises included the promise of the land, an inheritance to which Abraham's descendants weren't otherwise entitled, and included the promise of making Abraham's physical offspring and spiritual offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky or the uh, sand on the seashore. Now, existing today, there are only about 15 million uh, ethnic Jewish people, as of two years ago. About 15 million. Um, Add that up over time, maybe you get to 100 million, maybe 200 million. There are 400 billion stars in the Milky Way alone. God was referring not only to the physical offspring of Abraham, but also to the spiritual offspring of Abraham's faith. After having made this promise to Abraham, God continued to show his head to his people, bringing them up out of Egypt through Moses, as we just talked about, giving them an inheritance in the land of Canaan, even calling Israel God's son. God made it clear uh, through prophets like Isaiah and also Jonah, to whom Jesus refers, that his chesed would not only extend to the physical offspring of Abraham or the nation of Israel, but to those who have faith in God's promises of an inheritance and salvation. And Jesus came to declare God's chesed first to the physical offspring of Abraham and Israel, but also to the Gentiles, revealing that even non-Jewish people can enjoy God's covenant faithfulness and loving kindness and chesed through Abraham's faith. The Gentiles' position here is one of insignificance. We are Mephibosheth. (laughs) We are lame, we're living in nowhere, we have no ability to do anything, make a living. We're completely dependent on others We can't earn adoption into God's family. We can't earn an inheritance. We've lost our ability to dwell with the king. Now, listen here. This is an important point. We lost our ability as a people to dwell with the king when our distant grandfather fell in the garden. On the day that Saul fell in battle, Mephibosheth lost the ability to dwell in the house of the king. And on that same day, his nurse dropped him as a toddler and he lost his ability to walk. He became lame in both his feet and unable to provide, unable to do anything, unable to have the right to go into the king's palace. We were friendless and helpless and hopeless. We were even enemies of the most powerful king in the world. We, we need only now to accept God's chesed. God will adopt us into his family as sons and daughters, constant companions of God through his spirit in this life and with him in eternity, eating at the table of the king of the universe. And if it's It's my job today to be Ziba, to go and to tell you that you are invited, that you can come to the table, and that you are always invited to come to the king's table. But you have to come. You have to accept the invitation. Let's close this morning with reading what you might call the parallel passage to 2 Samuel 9 in the New Testament. Now, I have in your outline Romans 1, 2, and 5. Please read Romans 1, 2, and 5. Um, but I'm going to read Ephesians 1 and 2, starting in There's a It's kind of half of 1 and half of 2. And as I read this, you picture yourself, as I just described, picture yourself an enemy of the king, an outcast, living in someone else's house, and just... Join me in worshiping God as we read through this this passage. The one from whom we would run if he didn't summon us. Paul writes this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 18. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. Do you see chapter 8 of Second Samuel there? Conquering the known world far above every other name. And God, the Father, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind and just like Mephibosheth. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great chesed with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places at the king's table in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is our response to this? What should this mean to us today? How would you respond to someone giving you a lavish gift that you could never afford? Uh, I would never say no to a 1960 Ford GT40. But if you were to give that to me, I would feel very small. You know, we say we're floored. I really like that phrase. We say we're floored when someone does something like that, gives us an extravagant gift. You feel humbled, you feel really small, but in a good way. It's difficult to describe. You feel like you don't deserve something so generous, and that lack of deserving it is made obvious by the gift itself, or is brought to light by the generosity. It's a level of gratitude that draws us to do something. In return, we want to do something. So I when we end up saying thank you, which is just sometimes you ever say thank you and you're like, oh, I needed to say so much more than that. There's a burden on us to do something. And one of the most beautiful things is when that level of generosity is shown in the church because the proper response is to worship God. As we go our own ways this morning, uh, let's remember the lavish gift that God has given to us and our eternal inheritance through the humiliation and death of Jesus, bringing us up out of nowhere, lifting us up from being lame and disabled. And let us look for ways to show others God's has said. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are floored with your generosity to us. You've given us an inheritance that we could never repay, that we could never earn. It's categorically something that we just could not achieve. And that inheritance is you, to eat at your table. And it's not the food it's your fellowship, it's to be your constant companion. We thank you for your spirit that you've given to us as a down payment on our inheritance of being with you so that through your spirit, we can be with you daily. Thank you for the family of God. Thank you for our brothers and sisters through whom we can experience and show this has said to each other. In your son's name we pray.